This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, November 11th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. First Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. Well, good morning. My name is Sam, and I have the privilege of leading this group of hooligans called Restoration Road Church and getting the joy of preaching um, often. We're going to get right into this letter. If you have your Bibles, you're going to want to open to 1 Thessalonians, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. I am going to have one other verse, I think, for another place, and I'm not going to show it up there, so you'll have to feverishly look for it. Um, trying to encourage people to bring their Bibles, their real Bibles, their paper, old-fashioned Bibles, uh, so that they might begin a more disciplined reading of that, because we know when we look at our phones and things of that nature, we can be looking at all kinds of things, and the Bible, or maybe not the Bible, and when we're looking at the Bible, we are only looking at the Bible. So uh, that is something we are really trying to encourage. Let me pray so that it God always moved me out of the way. Heavenly Father, we praise You for who You are. Jesus, we praise You for what You have done. Holy Spirit, we thank You and praise You that You are carrying us through this life until we return to Jesus or He returns to us. Lord, our world is so busy and so full of noise and so full of distraction that at times it is difficult to hear You speak to us. But it's why we're here, Lord. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to be educated. We are here to hear You speak to us. We are here to proclaim who You are. Remind ourselves of what is real and what is true and where our eternal home truly is. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it has the power to transform us from the inside out. Thank You for giving people in our lives to share that Word with us and to walk with us, 
to disciple us, to admonish us, to encourage us, Lord. Those are the shepherds in our life that we desperately need and often rebel against. But thank You for all of us and for any of us who claim the name of Jesus that someone in our life was brought in by You to help lead us back to Your flock. Thank You, Jesus, for saving us. You are the great shepherd, the ultimate shepherd, the true shepherd. Pray this morning that You will move me out of the way. Holy Spirit, speak the words that You need to speak. Words of encouragement or instruction or conviction. Whatever You see fit that we need to hear. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're going to talk a lot about shepherds today. And I realize my wife, who is on her own retreat, she goes uh, once a year. Um, I forgot it was five days long because when she reminded me she was going said, when are you going to be back? And she said, Wednesday. And I went, oh, okay. Um, so I'm in survival mode. And in survival mode, I am so blown away by how much my wife thinks about all the time. Like kids have to eat and things like that, that I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, there's actually bedtime. There's actually dinners that need to be made. You actually have to be somewhere. And I am blown away. So uh, if I sound frazzled this morning... That's why. I am trying to survive until my wife gets back. So pray for me. She is an amazing shepherd I'm learning. I've already known, but it's very much in front of my face when she's gone. But we've been going through the first letter of Thessalonians, and we go verse by verse. We're obviously in chapter 2 today. By way of reminder, the apostle planted this church in the midst of persecution, and that persecution made him run away. Had to run away. Forced him to flee. But out of a deep affection for this church, which really is at this time probably a little bit smaller and younger than our own church, Paul writes this letter a few months after he leaves to encourage them. And he's trying to encourage them to walk in what I'm calling the normal Christian life. A life that looks pretty abnormal in the world. Now, Paul is writing to a church. He is writing to a committed assembly of local disciples. Like, there's a place to send this letter because all these people are there. And I make that point because it seems like a Christian's participation in or identification with a local church has for some time become viewed as at best optional or at worst detrimental to one's faith. I love Jesus, I don't like the church. I know I need Jesus, I don't need the church. Perhaps that's strong. It's my personal view. But however we might describe the normal Christian life today, I think fewer and fewer are connecting it with the life of the church. Now this couldn't be any more different than what we find in the New Testament. If you read through the New Testament, the book of Acts, and then all the letters that Paul writes to these churches. Even a cursory reading of the New Testament reveals that there is no such thing as Christianity that was separated from a church. In fact, technically, if you think about it, the New Testament, at least half of the New Testament, is written to churches or pastors of churches. There is this understanding even a direct command at one point that these letters to be read publicly at these gatherings and even circulated widely to other churches. 
Now, the other half of the New Testament, again, generally speaking, may not speak directly to the church as it's not a letter to the church, but it certainly speaks about the church, about the assembly, about the fellowship, about the body of Christ. The book of Hebrews goes so far as to warn against neglecting to gather as the church, as part of the normal Christian life. And even Jesus' final revelation to John, the letter that we get all excited about because of its apocalyptic and mysterious and kind of you know, different nature than all other books of the Bible, we mustn't forget that the letter begins with seven letters to different local churches. So Paul is writing to a church. In this text, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who gather in at least a home, but probably several homes in Thessalonica. They assemble there, right? If nothing else, we see that the normal Christian life means actually identifying with the people who love Jesus and gathering together in a place to serve and worship Jesus. Now Jesus describes Himself as the Good Shepherd who knows His sheep and who dies for His church. Peter calls Him the Chief Shepherd and the church's flocks. And leading these flocks for Jesus are these people called under-shepherds, pastors, who are called to lead and to love and to feed and protect the sheep whom Jesus has called into His kingdom. So suffice to say, my my big idea, if you will, is that the normal Christian life is a shepherded life. That every sheep needs a shepherd. But dare I say, every Christian needs a pastor. And you go, oh, the pastor's telling me that. I know it sounds weird. It's surprising actually how offensive a statement like that sounds to us. Or maybe to others. I think it probably sounds offensive to go, every Christian needs a pastor. Which sounds a little more specific than every sheep needs a shepherd. Oh, of course. But I don't know about every Christian needing a pastor. I don't think we like this in part because, first of all, we don't like people telling us what we need, flat out. But then, I'm not sure we like to view ourselves as sheep who need help. But that's what Jesus said we were, and that's actually what Jesus said we need. And so in our text today in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1-12, through it's really a text that's about good shepherds and bad shepherds. Now, many of us are familiar with bad shepherds. You could Google search bad shepherd, and I bet you'll get a bunch of names. And unfortunately, many of us are familiar with bad shepherds from personal experience or the experience of others. That we have had bad pastors in our lives. And sadly, it seems like the daily news is full of stories of what has now been coined spiritual abuse from bad pastors. And I don't say that in a way to uh, minimize that. I say that way just to describe how it's being described. We all know of pastor shepherds 
who have abandoned sheep, exploited sheep, manipulated sheep, abused sheep. That has happened, that is happening. Sadly, I'd say that will continue to happen as long as we're in this broken world. It is true in the Protestant church, it is true in the Catholic church, it is true in the cultic church. It's been true before there was a church, technically, even though there was a people of God. If you read in the Old Testament, a prophet named Ezekiel, which when I have the courage one day, I'll preach through that book because it's pretty crazy. But Ezekiel 34, God actually condemns the bad shepherds of His own people, Israel, who had scattered the sheep. He said this way in Ezekiel 34, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? He says. You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool, which comes from the sheep. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The stray you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Does that sound like bad shepherds you might hear about today? Yes. And so the existence of bad shepherds, the reality of bad shepherds, has understandably led many to reject all shepherds. But what's weird about the, the Bible, or strange, or unique, or interesting, is that God really loves this idea of the shepherd. He talks about the shepherd a lot. Men like Abraham were technically shepherds. David, right? The king was a shepherd. The announcement of the Messiah's birth was first announced to shepherds. Jesus Himself describes Himself as a shepherd. Shepherds are important in God's world. And while some would argue that they don't need anyone but the good shepherd, Jesus, what we'll see is that Jesus Himself probably disagrees with you. That He's given pastor shepherds as a gift to the church. And if bad shepherds lead to wounded sheep, no shepherds lead to wayward sheep. So we all need shepherds. And that includes a shepherd. We all need pastors. So in this passage, Paul is defending himself and his shepherding or his pastoral ministry. He's on a defense a little bit because he's being attacked. He's accused of being a bad shepherd. And so he's responding. Paul's message, his motives, his methods have all been target of this new criticism. And you have these people who have rejected the good news that King Jesus is reigning and ruling, that Jesus has died, that He has risen from the dead, that He has come to offer salvation to anyone who would believe. And they're convinced if they can assassinate the character of Paul, then they'll be able to kill the message that they already disagree with. Didn't work with Jesus very well, but they're thinking that. And so the enemies of the church in Thessalonica 
begin to leverage Paul's experience in Thessalonica because he ran away. Or at least that's how they're describing it. They use his kind of hasty departure because he wasn't there that long as the persecution grew and he was forced to leave. They're saying, look, he's not legitimate. He ran. And so Paul writes, really, this letter is pretty emotional. And it's interesting how much criticism pastors get, good and bad. And I'll just give you a little side note that pastors are not invincible, right? They have hearts too. And I actually think if you read this carefully, I think you hear Paul hurting a little bit. So it's a very emotional letter. He's defending his ministry. And in doing that, he gives a description of the kind of shepherd we should all strive to find for ourselves and the kind of shepherd we should all try to be. Because it's both in this normal Christian life. So he gives us five different descriptions. And he does that by kind of defending himself how he didn't pastor and then describing how he did. So if you look at the first two verses, he's speaking to these brothers in the church. And he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you when they first came was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So let's just sit on that for a second. Good pastors are first and foremost courageous soldiers. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the biggest criticisms lobbied against Paul was that he came with an agenda. Essentially, his critics argue that he came with the intent to take something and not to give something. Which leads many to wonder, why did you leave, Paul? It seems like at the first sign of trouble, you took off because you weren't getting what you wanted. It wasn't easy for you. When things got hard, they say you ran, Paul. When things got difficult, you fled, which is a telltale sign of someone with ulterior motives. So to address this, Paul says, we didn't arrive in vain. We didn't come empty-handed. We didn't come looking to take something. We didn't come with personal agenda for personal gain, but we came in God and for God with something from God. So as proof, he references an experience that preceded his time in Thessalonica. And if you survey the book of Acts, Acts 17 is where Thessalonica was planted. Acts 16, obviously, is the time that preceded it. And that was when he was in Philippi. So there's a letter to the Philippians. It's the church at Philippi. In Acts 16, Paul came in. He preached the gospel. He went to this place of prayer, and he was preaching, and people were being saved, and a church was planted. And then after some time, this young girl who was demon-possessed was screaming at him over and over again, and he got so tired of it, he finally cast the demon out of her. And she had been a fortune teller for a couple guys. She was a slave girl. She was really important to their business, and they got very angry because no demon, no fortunes. And so they grabbed Paul and his companions, and they drug them into the marketplace. So you can imagine they drug them downtown. 
And in the center of town, they were publicly stripped naked. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown into prison. And then they had their feet fastened in stocks, all without a trial, though he was a Roman citizen. And it was illegal to do all that. That was his experience. Now, if you had come to a place and your first experience of proclaiming God's truth was to be dragged into the public square, stripped naked, beaten with rods, thrown into prison, all done illegally and wrongly, would you be real eager to move on to the next place? I think most of us would at that point tap out. I'm done. Never thought I'd be stripped naked. Never thought I'd be beaten with rods. Never thought I'd be sitting in prison for doing God's work. If Paul had been about his own personal agenda or gain or comfort, he had every reason to run or quit and not continue on to Thessalonica. He could have blamed the vision that he had from God on the bad olive oil he had or something like that. Everyone would have understood, yeah, that's really hard. Makes sense why you're quitting but Paul didn't quit. In fact, he left affliction and he knowingly entered into affliction. He left what was hard and he knowingly went into a place that was going to be equally hard. This is the mark of a good pastor. Courage. Ministry is hard. And I would argue, if, which we will kind of flesh it out a little bit, when we talk about pastors, it's not just pastors, right? They're shepherds. And shepherds take many forms. There are spouses who are shepherds. Um, there are parents who are shepherds. There are friends who are shepherds. And there's certainly shepherds who are shepherds of churches. All of those things are hard. In my world, right now, parenting is the hardest shepherding job. I, compared to shepherding the church, whew, this is easy. Parenting is kicking my rear. And you know how easy it is to go, I'm out. People do it in marriage all the time. It's too hard. I can't shepherd that woman. I'm out. I can't shepherd those kids. I'm out. Maybe not out, but disconnected and removed and withdrawn from life. Good pastors are courageous. Good pastors know that ministry is hard, but good pastors and good parents and good men and good women don't run when there is conflict. In fact, they do the hard things and they even step into the hard things when others refuse to. I, at the risk of exposing myself, I will say this. Did you know that good pastors are not necessarily the ones with all the answers or all the strength? Do you know how many situations I've stepped into in accounting situations where I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say. It might be a messy, broken, I mean, when I became a pastor, I was blown away by how much sin was there because no one ever confessed sin to me. And sin like, I'm a pastor, good, let me tell you everything, like, whoa, right? And so I hear a lot of dark things and it's very easy to go, no thanks, or Go, gosh, I don't even know, but nine times in a ten, you know what I'm doing? 
stepping into it. Because that's what good pastors do. Good pastors are probably best described as those courageous enough and willing enough to get dirty. Good pastors endure suffering because they expect suffering. This is what Paul wrote, right? He talked about the own suffering in his life, and he said in Philippians, this is, you know, for the city that he was beat up in, writing to them, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I may be Christ and found in him, that I may gain Christ. Paul's boldness isn't found in his ability or his personality, but in God and his desire for Christ. And so time after time, you'll hear Paul talk about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He says it in many of his letters. We need to share in the sufferings of Christ. And I want you to understand that sharing in the sufferings of Christ isn't just suffering. Everyone suffers, believe it or not. That's not the kind of suffering that I believe Paul is talking about when he says this phrase. I believe the kind of suffering he's talking about is when good pastors suffer for the sake of the gospel. When they endure for the purpose of redemption. When they sacrifice and experience loss for the sake of God's mission. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ is a willingness in many ways like our own Savior to endure wrath in this life so that others might be delivered from wrath to come. That's why Paul can say, I am experiencing death in my own body so you might have life. And you may not understand that as a pastor to a church, but I bet you understand that for those of you who are parents for your children. I'll endure the pain that you might enjoy life. And so good pastors are courageous like soldiers. But that's not all there. Look at verse 3. It's describing, again, defending himself. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Let's check on that for a second. You can start to learn kind of the different kinds of accusations that Paul is probably hearing and what he's responding to. He had appealed to the Thessalonians through preaching and he had invited them to turn from their sin and believe in Christ. And his critics have challenged his motivation behind that appeal. Why do you really want them to believe? Why do you really want them to become Christians? They even question his, his, the methods that he's using and the, the words that he's saying. They say his message is false and his motives, motive is just for himself and that his methods are impure. They claim that he uses flattery. Right? That he, that he just sought to make a buck. That he wanted to obtain praise. So, 
Paul, it's very clear that this is just about your own popularity. It's just about your own prosperity. It's just about your own power. Sadly, I would probably say we could describe a lot of bad pastors like that today. Or you see pastors of churches who are truly about their own popularity as they make their samford.com's websites about their own prosperity for sure. I'm asking the Lord for $60 million from my church to get a plane so I can share the gospel. Like, are you bloody kidding me? And their own power. I'm confident that there are many bad pastors who we would describe the same way. Paul is defending himself against these attacks. The truth is, when the name of a pastor of a church grows bigger than Jesus, we should ask questions about the message and the motives and even the methods. Because whose name are we really about? Five times Paul says in some fashion, you know what I'm talking about, Thessalonians. You, 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 you remember. You saw. He's like, you were witnesses. You know what I've done. You've seen the way my ministry unfolded. Did you know a good pastor has absolutely nothing to hide about anything? Unafraid of being asked questions because he is above reproach. Paul states that he has been entrusted with a message because a good pastor, you know what they know? A good pastor knows that they are accountable to God. That is on the forefront of their minds. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 17 should write that verse down. It's in the back of the Bible, Hebrews 13, 17. You won't like the first part of it, but the second part is the part that's most important to me. Maybe you'll not care about the first part, but the first part says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Ooh. Let's put that off on the shelf and we'll talk about that another day. But it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch. Sounds kind of like shepherded language. It talks about the idea of being sleepless watch. Perpetual watch. Like a shepherd at, at night, right? Watching the flocks. They keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The identity as an entrusted steward of God is at the heart of every pastor. That's what Paul says. He's, I've been entrusted with this message. A good pastor humbly knows that they are a steward of something. They are accountable for something. They have been given something to care for. And so, a good pastor is not responsible to make sure his messages are all funny and memorable. A good pastor is not responsible to be sure that everyone likes him, that no one disagrees with his opinions. A good pastor is not supposed to start every ministry that someone says they really want or buy every bouncy house that will make the kids really happy or host every harvest party or 
do whatever he needs to attract people to the church. That's not the responsibility of a good pastor. Quite simply, he's responsible to speak God's truth for God's glory according to God's way. Simple, straightforward, plain, without any kind of blah. And when you do that, when you speak God's truth, you can, you can be sure you're going to get accusations like, oh, that's, that's error. Because it's going to sound very different to the world. I would argue it might even sound different in some of the churches. And when you commit to doing stuff for God's glory, people are going to start to question your motives. Because most of the world is about their own glory. And we start doing things God's way, it's going to look different because God's way is wisdom and the world sees it as foolishness. That's not the way you run an organization. Biblically it is. So Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 4, saying this is how you should view pastors. They should view the apostles. They should view those who are in leadership. He says, this is how one should regard us, he says. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that we be found trustworthy. It's a very small thing, he says, that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, he says. That's pretty powerful. I, I don't care what you think. I don't care what they think. I don't even care what I think. It's what, what God thinks is most important. It's what God says. A good pastor is more concerned with what God thinks than what he thinks, even more about what God thinks than the sheep think. And that's really important, yes, as you pastor a church, but yes, as you even pastor your own home. Because my guess is as you pastor your own home, there's some things the sheep are not going to like. And if you're devoted to just making the sheep happy, it's very possible you will dishonor the God, the God who saved you in doing that. Because what you're devoted to is not God's glory, but so-and-so's happiness. Now the rest of the passage is not a defense of how he did not pastor, but it's a recall of how he did. And in doing that, it's interesting how much family language he uses. Pastoring, as I said, is a job in the same way parenting is. It's a job, but it's not a profession. I want to distinguish those two. It's hard work, but it's not for professionals. He uses amazing language here. If you look at verses 7 and 8, he says, but we were. Let me tell you what we were like, Thessalonians. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you become very dear to us. Now, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. These are probably pretty manly men. You at least know Paul is. Paul's getting stoned. Paul is, is, is fighting, he is bold, he is courageous, he's not afraid. Many times he was beaten to the point of death, and then he'd go back for more. 
There are very few pastors man enough to describe themselves as nursing mothers. Paul did. I mean, how would you feel like, so what's your pastor like? He's kind of like a nursing mother. <laughs> right? Oh, that's creepy. Um, but that's how Paul describes himself. And like, okay, that's, that's important. And, and, and I don't know, do I, do, I want, do I like that? Do I want that? It's not the first place I would go. Like, we're, we're, we're giving swords to our elders, okay? That's where my mind goes. What's an elder? He's got a sword, right? I mean, I should have a milk jug up here because that's what it seems to be an important aspect. Gentleness is one of the strongest character qualities in a good pastor. And I'm not sure if there could be anything more gentle than a nursing mom with a young newborn. Gentle doesn't mean passive. It means nurturing. It means there's a softness. I think some of the good pastors become bad when they think they have to be super manly masculine and gentleness becomes something that is unattractive. But a good shepherd, like a nursing mother, seeks to, to meet the needs of her child, to understand, to know. You think about this nursing mother, like she cares for each of her children uniquely and she cares for them affectionately. And the mother desires to be near her children and desires to help her children grow and desires to sacrifice for her children for their well-being. Now, I don't mean to be too graphic. My wife had five kids. She nursed all five of them. And I don't know if there's a single one, maybe the first, she would say, that was such an amazing experience. At 2 a.m. in the morning, with a crying baby who's not latching very well, I'm not sure she's like, I love being a nursing mother. For those who are moms, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. But it's one that you joyfully, if not painfully, endure. A good pastor loves the people he shepherds. Flat out. Like a nursing mom, where you're like, I don't doubt that that mom loves her child. There's no, like a good pastor loves his church. That's why I say it's not a profession. Because the moment it becomes a profession, where it's not really driven by a love of a people, he should quit. That's how I evaluate it. There are many times over 12 years where I've thought, ah, I don't know if I can go. You know what changes it most often? It's standing up at a pulpit and looking out at people that I love I don't know all of you. I'm sure I'd love you if I did, but generally people I've been in ministry for with for many years whom I love and I know. There's a 
motherliness to pastoring, which is weird to say, but it's true. Paul's language is powerful and and challenging because he says, look, a good pastor isn't just about sharing words. It's about sharing their own selves, their own lives, the deepest part of themselves. That's not all he says. Look at verse 9. He says, for you remember brothers. He's used brothers before. You've got mothers and brothers. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. He addresses them as brothers, right? He stated that the apostles, he's already said, like, we had the right to demand support. We had the right to, like, take money. But we didn't exercise that right. On the contrary, we worked so hard so as not to be a burden to you. And I believe it is certainly important for churches to support their pastors. Our pastors, including myself, have always been wonderfully supported and my needs have been met by the church. But a good pastor should never make demands or lord his authority or say, where is my free parking spot up front? I think the most important part of this verse in the context of a passage about shepherds is to say that Paul identifies himself as a sheep also. See, every good pastor, every good shepherd understands that he's a sheep first. That even a pastor needs a pastor. And and the sheep work together. Like pastors and parents, they're certainly in greater positions, but they're not better people. They have more responsibility, but they also have a relationship, a mutually beneficial and dependent relationship. And every good pastor should follow the example of Christ, who right be in the form of God, the Son of God, came to serve. To come alongside. And what we see is that Jesus never asked us to do anything that He Himself hasn't willingly done first. This is the heart of a good pastor. If a pastor says, hey, we need, we need help to, to clean the church, then that pastor should be cleaning the church. Which I have. Serving, evangelizing, discipling, loving, caring, doing whatever I pass. Hey, we should be doing this. You should see me doing that. Because we're brothers and sisters. And in some sense, even before I'm your pastor, I'm your brother. Which means you have the responsibility to encourage me and admonish me like a brother. And work alongside me like a brother or sister. And not go, well, but you're the pastor. Fight against that. Fight against that. Last thing, verse 10 to 12. Paul says, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. Ah, father language. Okay, I can get behind this one. He uses the father as a final metaphor to describe his role as a pastor shepherd. And in Roman families, 
the image of a father was very severe, very harsh, but this is Greece. And in Greece, Greek thought was that the father should not use beatings, but reason. Exhortation, counsel. He should praise good conduct to instruct his children. That's not to suggest he never disciplined, but it is to say there was always love and instruction within it. And that's what the love of a good pastor includes, both encouragement and exhortation. And we would say that as a parent. And the truth is, you're going to default on one or the other. For me, exhortation is really easy. Encouragement, not so much. So we see it needs both. If you are perpetually correcting and perpetually exhorting, you will produce sheep that in many ways do the same thing or are fearful. And if you only encourage and they're all loving, you never tell them to do anything wrong, then they ultimately will stray. The love of a good pastor involves both of those things. And you'll notice that Paul writes in verse 12 that he exhorted each one and everyone because a good pastor doesn't merely proclaim from a distance one lessons for everyone all the time. A good shepherd calls the sheep to faithfulness publicly and privately, both corporately and personally. And you know this. As you have shepherded different people in your life, sometimes that happens in a more public way and sometimes more effectively in a more personal way. And this is what Paul says he was doing. But ultimately, like a good shepherd, right? He is, he is like a father who doesn't just say, hey, do this, don't do this. It's like, for those who have helped children learn to ride a bike, that's the image that's being kind of brought to light here. When your child wants to ride a bike, you don't say, hey, hop on, Go. Although my dad did, and it was really a bad experience because I went and right into cars. It was really horrible. But if you're a good father, I love you, dad, but if you're a good father teaching a kid to ride a bike, you don't just say, you just get on it and you just go. You're going to go through that moment. It might be long, it might be short, depending, and you are going to run alongside. And you're going to help them. Not just tell them, you're going to show them what it's like. So in summary, we see Paul describes his pastoring as part soldier, part steward, part brother, part mother, part father. And though he's talking about shepherding of a church, perhaps there are more shepherds in the church than over the church. Because as he's telling them and defending himself, he's also instructing them. In some sense, we're all sheep, and in some sense, we're all shepherds. We all need to be shepherded by Christ and we are all, I pray, shepherding someone for Christ. Let us not forget that in John 10, Jesus said that all the shepherds that came before Him were horrible. That all shepherds before Him were bad pastors and that He was the good shepherd that came. And the good shepherd came so that the sheep would have life and have it abundantly and they accomplished that or He accomplished that by laying His life down for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd and the prophet Isaiah said that we were all bad sheep who went astray. And so Jesus, like the good shepherd, like a good pastor, He came and He entered into my suffering. 
even though it wasn't his fault. He came and, and he served instead of asked to be served. He humbled himself. He came and, yes, Jesus loved me like a mother. He loved me personally. He loved me affectionately. He gave and sacrificed everything he could like a mother does for his child. And he even loved me like a brother, right? He walked alongside and continues to walk alongside. He lived the same life that I live. And like a good father, he taught me how to find my life. But uh, fortunately or interestingly, it was that I needed to lose it. I would encourage us with two things. One, the normal Christian life is the shepherded life. Where we admit that we need Pastor Jesus. We admit that I don't know my way. I need to be fed. I need to be protected because I'm weak and vulnerable. I'm not as strong as I think I am. And I don't know the direction I'm going. I need Jesus to pastor me. But as we always said that we are restored to restore, right? We're not just restored to the Good Shepherd. We are restored to actually be shepherds. And I'll close with Matthew chapter 9, which is probably familiar to you or maybe not. Jesus is walking through the villages and He was teaching and He was healing. He was proclaiming the Gospel. And it says that when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them. And He described them this way. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's how he described the people. Like, these people don't have shepherds. And what's the next thing he says? He says, he turns to his disciples. And he says, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, or dare I say, shepherds into the fields. He looks at the world and says, the problem with the world is that they don't have any shepherds. And so he saves us his sheep and then what does he do go be shepherds show the world the direction show the world the way love them care for them instruct them serve them all the things that good shepherds do not just in a church but actually out in the world yes the normal christian life is a shepherded life where we need a shepherd but actually the normal christian life is also being a shepherd it is, in many ways, losing your life so that others might find it. Sacrificing your life so others might find it. Similar to how Andrew described Mary, the woman who was in his neighborhood, who very simply, and we don't know exactly what she did, but you know what Andrew remembers? She laid down her life for me, a stranger. That's what God calls us to do. At the close of our service today, we're going to be laying our hands on two of the newest pastors of Restoration Road Church, Russell and Greg. And these are men whom God has asked to lay down their lives for this church, for this people, for this flock. And they're going to endeavor to be those soldiers and stewards and mothers and fathers and brothers that God has called them to be. And they have counted the cost. And by grace, they have chosen to share in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the gospel. So I just ask that you will please pray for these newest under-shepherds of our church. That you will love them and that you will follow them as men who will have to give an account to the chief shepherd. And they know that. What a beautiful thing to experience that today.
Let's pray.